0: In the name of God, Earthmaker, Painbearer, pain-bearer, life-giver. Amen. Amen. This past Thursday night, some of us from Ascension attended a lecture online by Professor Willie Jennings of Yale University entitled Ecology, Theology, and Dismantling White Supremacy was a wonderfully rich and provocative evening, and I'm sure I'll be metabolizing it for quite a while to come. One of the things Professor Jennings reminded us of was that the biblical world, and the world of Jesus in particular, were rooted in the land. Jesus was intimately connected with place. Like most people in most times of human history, He depended consciously on the soil, the sea, and the seasons. He lived a subsistence life and was intimately conversant with sparrows and fig trees, sheep, fish, and the harvests that produce daily bread. He knew how to read the weather. He lived in a more-than-human context, in relationship with the creatures of God of which humans are but one. Professor Jennings also proposed, and this was something that I had not thought about so much, that as much as Jesus spoke about the land in which he was rooted, the land also shaped and spoke through Jesus. The lilies offer peace from anxiety and the stones cry out, This may seem like a startling idea, but it is certainly a perspective, once again, that indigenous people from most parts of the earth at most times in human history would share. Professor Jennings went on to talk about the values that guide such relationships with the natural world, values surely embedded in Jesus' way, which also address the ecological crisis of our time. He called us to gratitude on the one hand, and respect for the natural world marked by asking permission to take what we need on the other. Overall, he spoke about a relationship of mutuality and reciprocity, to know the natural world as alive, a partner with us and with God. In short, our relationship to the other beings of the natural world is rightly I-thou, not I-it, as with a thing to be used up at will. I was thinking about this as I heard today's gospel, in which Jesus responds to the Apostle's plea, increase our faith with a story about a seed. The context which we did not hear this morning, may help us understand more deeply what's being discussed. In the verses right before this one, Jesus is teaching about what it means to follow him, maybe especially for those in positions of leadership. He says, Occasions of stumbling are bound to come, but woe, by anyone, woe for anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you, if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, then for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if they repent, you must forgive. And if that same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times a day and repents, you must forgive. So the faith we are speaking of here is not, in the words of the Queen in Alice in Wonderland, the ability to believe six impossible things before breakfast. We're talking instead about an attitude of the heart, trust, commitment, and most of all, practice that nurtures community. This is faith as a relationship and faith as a verb. It is not absolute certainty achieved once for all. Sometimes authentic faith is shaky and tremulous and fearful, but brave despite the fear. May not be particularly showy either. Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed he knew, Faith isn't about quantity at all. In fact, I think Jesus is telling them they already have the faith they need, at least in a germinal form. And how do seeds grow? This, too, is a common subject of Jesus' teaching. There's a hiddenness about it and a lot of unknowns. Much of the action takes place under the ground— Seeds need soil, fed by compost, waste, and aerated by busy worms. They require enough, but not too much water. Perhaps most important, if they are to grow, they must crack open and change radically. Elsewhere, Jesus says that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Nothing at all happens. But if it dies, it can take root, and it bears fruit and becomes something unrecognizable to its previous self. This is a profound, life-giving, and absolutely ordinary mystery. Jesus compares the sought-after faith to a particular seed, a mustard seed. In Matthew's Gospel, he says that a mustard seed is like the realm of God, starting from humble beginnings and then rambunctious and quite chaotic. Mustard is a weed, and it grows into a large, unruly bush that offers shelter and shade to birds and piquant spice and healthy greens to hungry humans. But in Luke's telling, this mustard seed faith is not important for the the bush it becomes, but rather for its impact on another tree entirely. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, says Jesus, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Preparing for this sermon, I learned that mulberry trees have an immense root system, maybe spreading 40 feet in all directions sometimes joining with a network of mulberry roots underground. They're deep and dense, and in the ancient world, uprooting one and dealing with that vast root system would have been extraordinarily difficult. In Jesus' metaphor, that's what faith accomplishes. And the tree is not destroyed. It's planted in an unfamiliar and unlikely environment. It's worth noting that this is not the way Jesus exercised faith. In fact, he refused the temptation of showy miracles like turning stones to bread or throwing himself off the temple. Rather, he responded compassionately, organically to suffering and need, and sometimes miraculously, and sometimes with a story. He also struggled with uncertainty and fear, not from a failure of faith, but in a profoundly faithful relationship with the God he called Abba. This metaphor speaks to the remarkable power of small, humble, daily, regular acts of faith and commitment, often in difficult circumstances. It reflects the nurture of life in community with the practice of justice, generosity, and mercy. Which, against all expectations, sometimes uproot seemingly immovable obstacles or radically transform them. Indeed, sometimes the radical transformation occurs in us. On this day, the Sunday closest to October 4th, we commemorate St. Francis of Assisi. The readings appointed are for this Sunday and not for Francis's feast. But for me, this gospel both illumines and is illumined by Francis's life and his remarkable faith. In telling Francis's story, I draw on Tom Cahill's fine book about the mysteries of the Middle Ages. Francis was born in Assisi, Italy, in 1182. He was the son of a cloth merchant who showed very little interest in the family business despite his father's efforts. He was a poet and a bit of a party guy, really. He was influenced by the love songs of the troubadours in search of something to stake his whole life on, but he wasn't particularly religious. But in 1205, Francis was drawn into the abandoned, derelict chapel of San Damiano outside Assisi. Almost by accident, it seems. But there he sat before a crucifix and he heard a voice say, do you not see that my house is in ruins? Go rebuild it for me. And something, really everything changed subtly and then with gathering force. The young man forsook his fine clothes and lived as a hermit, carefully rebuilding the ruined chapel while he cared for the poor of Assisi. At a certain point, his father, offended because Francis had sold some of his father's cloth to carry out this mission, had him hauled before the bishop for judgment. Francis appeared, dressed once more in finery, but he stripped naked in front of the bishop in the street and gave his clothes back to his father along with a purse of money to repay him, saying that now he wanted only to serve and love God in humble poverty. The bishop, astonished, wrapped Francis in his own cloak, which soon changed for a plain brown robe worn by Franciscans to this day. People were drawn to Francis' way of following Jesus in poverty and humility, but even more to his absolute joy in doing it. He called his close community, the Friars Minor, little brothers, and he sent them out to live simply among the poor, to preach the love of God and judge no one. Stories are told about how Francis embraced lepers, preached to the birds, and saw God in all of them. I love the story about how he made peace between the people of Gubbio and a great wolf who had menaced the town. He corrected the wolf, addressing him as brother, and welcomed him in to be part of the community. It's less known, maybe, that Francis went to Egypt with the Fifth Crusade, not as a warrior, but as a healer. And there he met the Sultan al-Malik Kamil. He talked with him about Christ, because that's what Francis talked with everyone about. He could easily have been executed, but the Sultan was moved by Francis's courage and sincerity, and he invited him to stay a while. Francis, in turn, was impressed by the faith and devotion of the Muslims he met. When he went back to the Christian camp, he tried to broker an end to the fighting, but the cardinal in charge of the crusade would not listen. Francis went back to Italy convinced that he had failed, deeply saddened by the many ways in which his followers did not live up to his vision and by the corruption of the church and its leaders. He was weakened and sick, but this drew him closer to the sufferings of Christ, another who died a seemingly ignominious failure. Despite all his trials, it was at the end of Francis's life, and he died at 44, that he wrote the radiant canticle of the sun, filled with gratitude and mercy and praise. We just sang a translation as our entrance hymn. It has an utterly joyful vision of God alive in all creation and of kinship with sun and moon and water and fire, Mother Earth and her creatures, even sister death. Francis' witness carries seeds of inspiration and challenge for so many of us Christians and far beyond the Church, even to the present day. Francis is, of course, the patron of ecology and animals. It is in his honor that we bless our animal companions on this day. I'm glad to see that some of them are here, and I hope more will come, even in the rain. We recognize what a blessing they are to us. These relationships offer love and learning and delight and comfort across species boundaries. What a blessing when our connections with the animals who share our lives open us to deeper compassion in the context of the more-than-human world. What a blessing when they help us attend to the vulnerable and the voiceless, the little ones of whom Jesus spoke, and to difference as a mystery and a wonder. This day invites us to joy in the spirit of Francis, Also, if we are honest, it calls us to lament all that is broken, harmed, and lost in the ecology of our world because of human greed and hubris. In the face of the climate catastrophe, mass extinctions, and disappearing habitats, as we struggle with storms and floods and fires and drought, famine, and the mass movement of climate refugees, Surely we cry with the disciples in today's gospel, Lord, increase our faith. Let us draw on the example of Francis, his audacity and his wholeheartedness, his humility and delight in creation, his openness to the fullness of suffering and joy, his holy risk-taking foolishness and faithful love his little way of seeing God in all. And let us practice our faith in small steps and sometimes daring ones. Let us grow it by acts of mercy and justice, generosity and courage, as we listen to the earth and her creatures. Let us remember that the seeds of God's commonwealth grow by grace working underground. In these times, lamentation and grief are part of our journey, part of our work of faith. As we heard from the lamentations of Jeremiah, sometimes it is in opening ourselves to all of it that we discover God's mercies, which are new every morning so i want to close with a poem by wendell berry which is a blessing and a bidding for us as we grow in faith when despair for the world grows in me and i wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be i go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. Amen.